Good afternoon, and welcome to Strategies for Mitigating Insider Threat Risk, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by ProTennis. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments anytime in the Q&A box, and we'll take them later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Chuck Christian, VP of Technology and CTO at Franciscan Health, Adam Zoller, Chief Information Security Officer with Providence, Nicole Brown, Director of Privacy at the Office of Compliance and Integrity with the Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago, and Nick Culbertson, Co-Founder and CEO of ProTennis. And then we will have our Q&A. So let's jump right in. Uh, lots of stuff to talk about. Looking forward to it. Uh, Chuck, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Sure, absolutely. I've, I have the pleasure of working with Franciscan Health, which is a, uh, a 12 hospital system uh, that spans uh, through central Indiana all the way. We have one hospital in south suburban Chicago, uh, about 350 to 400 uh, locations. If you count all the ambulatory care physician practices, uh, lab draw stations uh, and those type of things. Uh, and if uh, if it's broken, I'm responsible for it. That's kind of the way I look at it. Uh, I own all the infrastructure uh, and um, uh, the you know, site support and the network uh, and the strategy related to that and the cloud too. So, very good. Thank you, Chuck. Uh, Nicole. Sure. So, uh, Anna Robert Lurie. Um, Children's Hospital. It's the largest pediatric provider in the region uh, with a 140-year history. Uh, we are the top-ranked pediatric hospital in the region and have actually been ranked in nine specialties uh, for the top 10 in the nation by U.S. World News and Report this year. Uh, I want to touch on a couple of our ongoing initiatives. Uh, we, of course, uh, participate in academic pediatric research, uh, looking for different cures and more information about various uh, pediatric illnesses and diseases. And we're also devoted to community being a community uh, resource through our Magoon Institute. Uh, one of our top priorities is actually attempting a really lofty goal, but attempting to uh, remove healthcare disparities in our uh, local pediatric population. As far as what my role is in the organization, uh, is a lot of different things, but what I would sum it up as is my job as the privacy director is to promote a culture of privacy awareness, compliance, and um, just awareness throughout the facility of um, the culture and and how to be compliant while also collaborating with all disciplines. Very good, Nicole. Thank you. Adam? Hey, everybody. Adam Zoller. I'm the Chief Information Security Officer for Providence. So I lead uh, all cybersecurity for Providence, the healthcare system out on the West Coast. Um, we uh, operate between Alaska and then all the way down the West Coast through Texas, 53 hospitals, 1,100 clinics. Um, about 125,000 full-time employees and another 100,000-plus contractors and non-employed uh, clinicians. Uh, my cyber team's about a little under 300 people globally between 
West Coast US and a, a lot of remote people, frankly, at this point. And uh, Hyderabad, India, we have a good presence there, about 120 people in Hyderabad, India. Excellent. Thank you, Adam. Nick? Hey, everyone. Nick Culbertson, CEO and one of the co-founders of Pretennis. Uh, we're a healthcare compliance analyst company that uses artificial intelligence to help automate um, uh, auditing capabilities. And excited about this conversation today because one of our big theses is, is uh, AI used for auditing is not just about finding incidents. It's about being able to predict and prevent them through key education opportunities um, that uh, that um, Nicole was mentioning. So looking forward to it. Very good. All right, Chuck, we're going to start with you. Talk about the current state of insider threats. What are insider threats? And it sounds maybe like it should be an obvious answer, but there may be different definitions of, of what people consider to be insider threats. And are they on the rise? What are your thoughts? Well, uh, the thing about it is I, I, I'll put them in a couple of different buckets, uh, those that are purposeful and those that are accidental, uh, because uh, we're we're creating uh, a, a, an ever-expanding threat landscape you know, by the equipment we put in place, the additional systems we put in place, the fact that we're moving our infrastructure out of our uh, some of our control, uh, but we're doing our best to control that in multiple different clouds uh, and platform as a service, infrastructure as a service. And so that attack surface uh, is continuing to grow. So we're in some cases, I think we're making it easier for people to make mistakes. Uh, and uh, and you know, I had a conversation this morning during our, uh, our Thursday morning leadership meeting about uh, we're you know, we're now you know, listening to Adam. I, I thought I had a contractor problem, but uh, man, you, you made me feel really good about it. To tell you the truth is that we have more and more people requesting access to our systems to provide additional services because we're moving more and more things out to manage services and contractors. And so, uh, you know, the in, in, insider threat are those that are our employees or our contractors or anybody else that comes in contact with our our solutions, which could be our vendors who are supporting our our facilities, or or just about any any place they can touch our organization. So you yes, jump in, Anthony. And Go ahead, to, please, Adam. Yeah, um, and I, I feel like um, you know I, my background and experience may lend to a little bit of um, uh, I guess uniqueness around this specific question. When I was at a former employer, I had the privilege of leading the investigation into um, a gentleman, last name of Snowden, who was one of the bigger insider threats who hit the U.S. federal government. And then uh, additionally, and this is all in the news at a previous, another previous employer, separate previous employer, uh, we used some data analytics to discover uh, insider threats that were stealing intellectual property and worked with law enforcement to apprehend the individual before they flew out of the country back to China. Um, I'll just say from a threat perspective, insider threats are very similar to the other types of threats that may target your organization. You have um, nation state sponsored criminal um, criminal focused insider threats focused on monetary gain and then hacktivist focused insider threats who may be focused on disrupting systems or proving that they can do something just for the sake of proving they can do something. The only difference between insider threats and your external threats in that respect is that insider threats potentially have the um, access to do the most damage inside your organization. Again, depending on their capability and their intent, um, the most damage to your systems, the most damage from a data loss perspective um, to your organization. Um, and again, nation state sponsored, um, you're going to see them targeting intellectual property. You're going to see them um, furthering uh, 
depending on which nation they come from and their na their nation's uh, goals, you're going to see them targeting specific types of information or disrupting business in a way that um, supports their national interests. On the criminal side of the house, you're going to see them targeting data that's easily monetizable or sellable on the dark web um, or causing business disruption for extortion schemes. Um, and then on the hacktivist side of the house, and I've seen incidents um, uh, on this side of the house as well, you're going to see people just trying to cause mayhem within organizations for the sake of, you know, either getting laughs out of it, proving they can do it or any any number of other um, reasons. Um, but I, again, I say insider threats are very similar to your external th threats that you're going to face. The only real difference is is kind of the access that they have and the fact that you trust them. And as far as are they on the rise, I would say looking back at one of my previous employers, um, the federal government has been much more open about indicting cyber actors targeting your organizations from an external perspective since about 2013 2014 time frame and what i've noticed over the years is since the um since the federal government and private sector organizations like mandiant crowdstrike and others cyber uh, cyber intelligence organizations have been very open about naming these external threat actors especially in the nation state space I have seen an increase in the insider space specific to nation states targeting organizations. And again, especially organizations who have sensitive intellectual property that may be of value or use to those nation states. Adam, when you talk about um, a nation state being an insider threat, explain to me what you mean by that, because I think <clears throat> of nation state as external, unless perhaps they've recruited an employee to you know participate in their scheme, then perhaps you have a nation state that has now managed to become an insider threat. Just tell me what, a little bit more what you mean by that. Which happens on it happens on both sides of what you just talked about. Um, people are um, recruited specifically to find jobs or roles within companies who have sensitive intellectual property, or in the case of healthcare delivery organizations, genomics data is of uh, keen interest to um, lots of nations out there. Um, so again, um, both sides of the house, people who are enticed to um, provide sensitive data to a nation state, either wittingly or unwittingly. So they may work for an organization that has sensitive intellectual property. They get reached out to by, and I'll pick on China. Uh, China has a program called the Thousand Talents Program, um, where, uh, you know, long story short, they're trying to get people of Chinese national origin to um, bring ideas and intellectual property and and um, other things back to mainland China to form businesses um, under the promise that they'll get uh, funding from the um, Chinese state uh, to found their own uh, companies. And so what that leads to is in, in a case that I uh, dealt with in the past, and again, this is all out in the news media, so it's all public. Um, but when I worked for GE Healthcare, we had an individual who was enticed through the Thousand Talents program uh, to um, essentially what he did was steal sensitive technology from GE Healthcare and tried to flee the country to go back to China. And what we found during the investigation was he had uh, data on his system that indicated that he was being recruited by this Thousand Talents program that's a state-sponsored program. So in that case, that individual may not have known necessarily that he's working for a specific government, but um, in other cases, um, and again, I can't speak to any specific case on this one, but um, I've, I've, I'm aware of incidents where um, people have sought out roles in organizations with the understanding that their goal is to target sensitive intellectual property. Again, with the understanding that companies are investing a tremendous amount in cyber security for external threat these days, the insider side of the house, again, 
best access to data, potentially most damaging for companies, but also from a threat actor perspective, it's much easier. If you get somebody's foot in the door in a company, it's much easier to take data as a, as a trusted individual than it is from an untrusted individual. Adam, there was a really great example of what you're talking about in the news uh, with a sting operation actually based in um, the uh, Maryland area where a physician, Russian actor, was actually pulling medical records and was all set up. So fortunately, it was well contained, but and actually nothing bad happened. But a good example of how, you know, this is probably going on more frequently than we think. Nick, this, this is blowing my mind. Just <laughs> I, I haven't mentally like. I just first mentally got to the point of thinking of someone having nefarious intentions when they're going to apply for the job. Like I hadn't gotten there before, but so this is a real threat now. So large health systems, let's, let's make the threat profile, large health system like Providence, like Franciscan uh, and Chuck, I don't know if you got research going on there, but I see research as a critical component to to having that elevated threat level. Obviously, Nicole said there's lots of research going on where she's working. So if you have that profile, large health system, significant research arm, I mean, do we have to have the CISO talking with HR and saying, hey, you could have people coming in here with nefarious intentions, because that's ultimately the easiest way is to get those insider credentials. What are your thoughts? Yeah, if it, it absolutely is a is a, a big risk, and I think we don't think about it enough because uh, you know in the industry we talk a lot about the the risk of hacking uh, and these large external actors. The reason for that is because the aggregator of this data, the best aggregator of this data is the Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights. They publish data on any incident that affects more than 500 individuals. And so because they're focusing on only incidents that affect more than 500 individuals, that's going to have a bias towards incidents that breach lots of data. And those typically tend to be hacking incidents where you're going into an entire database. Uh, and so I uh, just point up the most recent numbers, 2020, 90% of um, uh, individuals' medical records that were breached were due to hacking. In 2021, it was ni- almost 95%. So even the latest IBM cost of a data breach report really focused on hacking because it's such a big exposure to patients' medical records. However, if you add in the incidents that infected less than 500 individuals, you actually see the data significantly flip, where the number of incidents that were caused, the percent of incidents that were caused by insiders in 2021 was 94%. So I'm just going to say that again, because it's backwards. If you think about the patients that are affected, most of them tend to be hacking incidents. But if you talk about the actual incident, which is any medical record that's breached by an individual or an actor, most of those are due to insiders. Uh, And so it makes sense that HHS is focusing on the medical records breach because they have an obligation to protect patient data across the U.S. So they're focusing on who's impacting the most uh, patients across the U.S., But for folks on this call and and listening to this call that are responsible for a health system, you think about an individual investigation. I'm sure everyone's been in those meetings where you have one person accessing one record that's creating a significant amount of risk. And so when you think about the time spent, it's, you know, it's not just hacking. There's also all the insiders that you have to be responsible for and managing their access 
uh, because of the unfettered, relatively unfettered access that they have throughout healthcare. Anthony, your point on research as well complicates this because a lot of these insider risks, um, I mean, it's not as clear cut as saying this person has malicious intent and this other person does not. Uh, we see a lot of requests for research partnerships from foreign um, foreign entities, foreign universities coming in that say, hey, you know, this particular doctor is an expert in the field of, I'll pick on genomics again. They want to partner with your healthcare delivery organization in the U.S. You know, can you partner? And, and the physicians say, yeah, absolutely. You know, this is, this is going to further our research of genomics. This person's an expert. This is a fantastic opportunity. But then you look at it through the lens of, again, insider risk and the types of data that those people will have access to. And I know for a fact that a lot of uh, universities, especially in some less friendly countries, have very tight partnerships with their state security organizations. You really have to take a fine tooth comb through each one of these requests that come through and say, what risk does this represent to our organization versus what gain do we potentially have of partnering with these organizations? Um, And have a tight control over what systems those people have access to if you do accept that risk. Yeah, that's a lot there, and we'll get more into that. I want to bring Nicole in. Um, Nicole, we've talked about a lot of different scenarios, and you mentioned that you've got the research arm. Where does someone in your position want to focus their time? I mean, do you go through scenarios and say, okay, we're going to focus on the most likely scenarios and put our efforts into preventing these type of things? I mean, how do you approach the job? What's your What's your advice? So when it, I would say our biggest threat when it comes to privacy, of course, like everyone said, you know, there, there's some nefarious actors out there. Uh, but I, I think most of what we see are either mistakes or just people's willful ignorance. Um, and one of the big buzzwords right now in healthcare is high reliability organizations. Um, I, I tend to look at things um, that come up th- through our auditing and monitoring practices, which are is a HIPAA required uh, uh, practice. We're required to uh, periodically audit and monitor all accesses to our electronic PHI and really all PHI. Um, so we really do take the approach of auditing and monitoring really does inform our education and some of the actions that we take in response to what we see. Uh, we're on the EPIC EHR system, and we not only monitor our own uh, workforce, um, including contractors, we also monitor uh, our HIE users um, more commonly referred to as Community Connect, um, and also our uh, Care Everywhere users, uh, those that only have uh, view-only access or they pull over uh, CDA documents. Mm -hmm. Uh, But auditing and monitoring has been fantastic for us as far as really informing um, some of the um, very interesting practices and maybe things that aren't necessarily within the privacy realm, uh, but things that are perhaps questionable from a compliance, from a policy uh, perspective, but it allows us to do more targeted education and even um, education related to workflows. Maybe what they're doing is uh, acceptable by HIPAA standards, but the way that they're accessing the information is not best practice. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Anthony, let me, you know, I, infrastructure is, you know, part of my focus today. And, and you know, having been a healthcare CIO for almost 30 years before this uh, 
this change in my career is that, you know, I don't think any health system knows where PHI lives. Uh, everybody thinks it's in their medical record, or a lot of people do, and no, it's not, particularly if you're running a research uh, program. It's everywhere. Uh, we recently uh, started looking at our file shares uh, to see where PHI actually lives, and uh, and we we've piloted a couple of programs to go identify it, not to find uh, you know exactly what's there, but you know if it's PHI, where is it living? And you know we have a rule that you're not supposed to keep any any data on your laptop. I mean we we have. Uh, you know, almost 30,000 uh, pieces of equipment out there, and we're, they're not re- allowed to save that data to their laptop. Well, uh, they do. Uh, and a patient's list, particularly our home care uh, staff and stuff. And so you really need to have solutions uh, that are just now starting to come out. And Anthony, I think you've had a couple of mm-hmm. sessions with Dave Ting and, and some of those and uh, Frank about the tool that they have. Uh, and, uh, that will do two things. One, it'll identify where it lives on file systems, but also identify where it is in flight, where it's moving to. And I think that's uh, uh, you know the next level of intelligence that we need to have is knowing where that data is and where it's going. So, Chuck, yeah. go ahead, question. Nicole. Thanks. Uh, I just want to ask a question. So, what uh, influenced you to start asking where electronic PHI was being stored. I know we started, our organization started asking the question while we were implementing various requirements under the Cures Act. So uh, just curious, what uh, is your driver? Well, part of it started out with, I, I have a massive amount of data, old stuff that's sitting out on file shares throughout our organization, not just in my data centers. And we have a policy, uh, and this is kind of dumb, uh, that we have a policy uh, that after 90 days, your email disappears. And so people have a tendency to go figure out how to save uh, very uh, sensitive emails, and they typically go drop that on file shares to save them, because if not, uh, it's going to disappear. It's going to be auto-deleted after 90 days. And so I started looking at... um, how much email is being kept on all the file shares? And then I started asking the other question, what is in those emails that they're keeping? And we started uncovering uh, PHI. And so I started saying, well, if if we're keeping emails, are we keeping spreadsheets? Are we keeping uh, you know, uh, uh, PDFs of documents and stuff on file shares? And so we just started digging into it. And uh, fortunately, I sit on the advisory board of David's company and was able to do early testing uh, of that tool and and help them tune it a little bit. So uh, that's kind of where I got started uh, digging into it. And, you know, it's kind of one of the things, if you don't want to find the monsters, don't go looking for them. Uh, and so, you know, unfortunately, I, uh, I created a self-fulfilling prophecy. We've been looking into data loss prevention ourselves and more focused on email than file sharing, but um, similar um, similar story as well. So I uh, I definitely feel your pain. Well, I mean, I, I use this uh, that, you know, that every time we think we have the systems idiot proofed, uh, somebody takes up the challenge. <laughs> um, Nick, um I know we're we're doing something with with your company and Talsa. You guys have a, a relationship there. Um, how do you, how do the two solutions complement each other? What you bring to the table and what Talsa does? 
One of the things we often hear from chief information security officers and and, and privacy officers is uh, it's really difficult to protect the data if you don't really know where all the data is. Yep. And so, uh, you know, Pretenis is able to monitor access log layer uh, events and understand whether there's questionable activity in those access logs that are indicative of a potential data breach or, or um, a privacy violation. But if there's data out there that's not part of a system that's being monitored or part of an access log, it's it's just like Chuck said, if you, you can't protect it, if you don't even know where it is, so you have to go find it. And that's that's what TauSite brings is being able to identify where all the uh, potential PHI, EPHI sits in your organization and, and uncovers those areas that may not have as much uh, capabilities monitor, uh, to be monitored. So in other words, our solution can't even work if it's not even being um, identified. Right. So very complimentary. The two work together where we're real. Um, Adam, I'd like to bring you back in and talk a little bit more about these requests that you get from the medical folks, the research folks. Um, it sounds like... It, it, that comes from them. So they get, they get, they have a relationship with a clinician somewhere around the world or a researcher. And they say, Adam, we want to work with these folks. We want to exchange data. This is a world renowned person. You mentioned that might be the pitch to you. Uh, and then you've got to go do your research on the entity. Um, and I guess see if they're, you know, good and what their security practices are, get them to agree to certain levels of things. So would you say it's almost like a two-step process? It's like one, we want to be gatekeepers of those relationships and be very careful about establishing them. And then two, we want to do what uh, the monitoring and, and the, the auditing and the monitoring. So uh, we've, we've checked beforehand to make sure we're getting together with someone legit, but then we're still going to continue to verify the data flowing and that relationship and all that. Is that a little bit how it works? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say um, where we've seen the most success is I, I've gotten out of the game of trying to screen every individual and every organization that tries to do business with us. I think that's a futile effort, especially since a lot of the um, true insider risks are very good at covering their tracks and coming off like a legitimate organization or a legitimate person. So I've gotten my team focused really on um, what type of data are they asking for, system access are they asking for, um, or do they actually require to do this particular body of work and then putting stringent controls around it? And for some of the riskier bodies of work, what I've gotten my team to do is, you know, in one example, there was a, an individual in a foreign nation who wanted access to genomics data. And we said, we're not going to grant you access to genomics data, but an individual on our side who's going to partner with you can access the data. And then whatever's relevant, non-PHI, um, they can communicate with you um, over a standalone laptop on a wireless cellular hotspot that doesn't touch any of our systems whatsoever. They can just communicate with you and they can't send you any of our data. They can, they can do the research on our side and, and communicate with you through that mechanism. So really limiting the data risk, limiting the cyber risk of doing um, that particular research study with that individual on the other side of the world um, and also, frankly, just protecting our patients and doing the right thing. I think in any case, the way that I look at things is if there's a case where if what we were doing ended up in the Wall Street Journal, like, would we feel good about what mm. we're doing? And that's mm -hmm. kind of the, the litmus test that I give. And, and, you know, obviously dive down to a deeper technical level about the data protection and system protection. But um that's kind of the North star that I, that I align around. And those requests come in, I'd say, you know, two, three times a year, we get requests that are, you know, you have to manually kind of go through and architect a solution for, 
part of it is also educating some of our system individuals, our, our clinicians to say, um, Hey, I know you want to partner with these people, but, um, again, if this ends up in the wall street journal, like how would this resonate with the readership? Like what would people say about, about Providence if that happened? Um, so, um, education is a big component of this as well. And I would absolutely agree with you. Um, while we haven't had any um, anything along the lines of what you're talking about, Adam, which it sounds fascinating to me, especially having a, a prior uh, defense background as well. Um, we did have an incident uh, last year where one of our researchers ended up having to go back home to Hong Kong, take care of a sick parent and thought, I'm going to do my work while I'm at home and took their company-issued laptop with them. Uh, did not ask anyone, just uh, made that decision. So uh, we quickly uh, got a group together. Uh, we were able to remotely disable that laptop so that that information was not um, accessible. Everything through our work uh, stations are always through VPN anyway, So, um, which is great. We, we had that remote kill switch, uh, but we really need, and that was the first time that incident had actually happened, but it really got us talking with myself, with the CISO and others, with our research partners to talk about what's realistic and what is the climate now. Um, a lot of our researchers are asked to present at international forums, international conferences. And so one of the things we implemented was that's fine if they're going to take a company uh, laptop, but it's going to be a clean one and nothing is allowed on it other than, of course, uh, the presentation itself, no other information. And then when they bring it back, they turn it in and we wipe it clean again. So. Doc, where do we come down on this um, advise versus refuse, right? This is always a big question with CIOs and CISOs in terms of, you know, we're supporting, we're, we're, we're protecting the enterprise, but we want to support the users. Um, how often does it get down to sort of a very difficult discussion where neither side is really like, you're doing your best to educate about a threat profile that they're setting up for. And they're saying, no, Chuck, this is the way I want to do it. Either I'm a researcher or I'm I'm a surgeon or whatever the case may be. And this is what we need to do. And you're saying, well, I'm not comfortable with that. So, I mean, do these things really get to that point very often where it's kind of adversarial? Well, see, I actually thought you had some conversation with some of the physicians, <laughs> uh, same one I have. Yeah, I mean, absolutely is. I mean, uh, and I'll go back in time. Uh, and when, you know, when some of the first EMRs that I was, I was actually implementing, and meeting with physicians and saying, you know, we need to protect the data. Uh, and uh, so um, many of the physicians in the room said, well, I don't want anybody to see any of the data that I put in, but I want to see everybody else's. And so I said, did you just hear what you said? <laughs> and so the thing about it is, is that, you know, I've, I've probably been accused of being an obstructionist. Uh, and And unfortunately, you always get the uh, the, the two things thrown up around patient care and patient safety. Uh, and those are the issues that they're, that they're wanting to, um, move forward, but you're being obstructive, uh, even though you're trying to be, you know, a collaborative and get them to understand why you just can't let anybody have access to anything they want to. So I think it's a fine line. And, and, and the way that I've addressed it over time is relationships. Uh, making sure that, you know, that people understand that I'm just not an ass 
and I'm not doing it just because I can, but there are some good valid uh, reasons. And the thing about it is that uh, we're protecting the organization and everybody needs to be focused on that. And I think that goes right back to, you know, what Nicole said about educating people about how do you do things. I mean, I'll give you another story real quick. I had a, a really good friend of mine. He was our, my my doctor. Uh, he was in charge of rehab, but he was also an internal medicine doc. And we preached a lot about privacy, particularly when HIPAA came out. Uh, and, you know, they just basically said, well, you know, I'm a doctor. I should have access to anything. I don't want a password and that kind of stuff. But he happened to be one day in the uh, gym and he was meeting with a patient uh, that everybody in the gym was overhearing the conversation that he was having with the patient. Somebody sitting in the the room picked up the phone and they called the, the HIPAA hotline uh, at HHS. And it wasn't long before the Office of Civil Rights reached out and called him on the phone and to talk about that incident. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it scared the bejesus out of him because they explained to him exactly what could uh, happen to him legally because of the, the breach in protocol that he had. Well, guess what happened? Uh, he became my evangelist mm-hmm. uh, in our privacy office of evangelist with the medical staff going, hey, don't do this kind of stuff. And so I, I think that we have to bring them into the fold so they understand what the, the gravity uh, of any kind of breach, because, you know, and Adam said a couple of times, you know, Wall Street Journal is one thing, but getting it into the Indianapolis Star uh, is just as powerful uh, as getting into Wall Street because the local folks read those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the business people are going to read the Wall Street Journal, but the, the average person that's going to walk into one of our doors uh, is going to read the Indianapolis Star or the the Fort Wayne uh, or in, in the South Bend, whatever. So. Adam, these when you have these conversations, uh, and then we'll switch gears, but I do find this interesting. When you have these conversations with these researchers and you're laying out the scenario under which they can move forward about, you know, we're not sending the data. You're going to manage the data. You're going to go back and forth. Uh, I imagine sometimes you're told, that's great, Adam, but that doesn't work for me. I don't want to do yeah, it that sure. way, either from your side or from the other side, which you may have less concern about the other side saying this doesn't work for me. Maybe the internal user is going to manage that. But when you, I'm assuming you get that pushback sometimes that says, no, this doesn't work for me. And how do you manage those conversations? Yeah, certainly. Um What's worked for me, you know, I have, I'm blessed to have an incredibly supportive executive team beyond cybersecurity. So our CIO, BJ, our CEO, Rod, and uh, all of Rod's directs um, all take security very seriously. And we've set up some governance council structures within Providence to have um, conversations about data protection and cybersecurity with those individuals who accept risk around data security and cybersecurity um, for the entire system. So what I do is in these particular cases, if I run into a case where, hey, you know, physician, clinician, researcher wants to participate in a particular study, but from a cybersecurity angle, I see it's a high risk or even not from a cybersecurity angle. If it's not a cyber risk, but it's a data privacy risk or a reputation damage risk, um, we bring those up to that council and we say, hey, HR leader, legal leader, um, privacy leader, compliance leader, risk leader for the organization. This may not be a cybersecurity risk, but here's potentially where it may be a risk in your area. And then we have an open conversation about it. 
And then the right individuals are making the, that risk-informed decision about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable for us, the Providence Health System, versus Adam saying from a security angle, mm-hmm. you know, just, no, you can't do this, which, you know, doesn't go over very well in some situations. But again, I'm empowered to say no. If there's a cybersecurity risk, if they're trying to set up a point-to-point VPN between a third party and another country in our system, absolutely not. There's no way that's getting approved because we inherit the cybersecurity risk from those third parties. And likewise, on the data security side or data privacy side, our chief privacy officer is empowered to say no at any given point in time. So for our organization, uh, we have an an embedded uh, research compliance office uh, with our uh, research arm. It's nice to have those experts that they are embedded, they understand the research side, but then we have a very close working relationship with them. They actually sit on our privacy and security committee with us and they quickly will refer things to us or uh, just, hey, I've got a question about this or just refer uh, that research team to us and just to ask questions or ask it of our uh, CISO, can I do this? What's possible? Are there things that I need to be aware of? Uh, So that partnership I think has been huge. And I think really um, has created that um, it's, it's still a work in progress. It's, it's not perfect by any means, but I think it really has um, helped with the air in in compliance in that area. Nick, um, We've talked a lot about research because I don't think we're overstating the degree to which having a research component elevates your risk level. Um, What are your thoughts around that and what you've seen with your customers, potential customers, in terms of research changing the risk profile? I think the very idea of research is that you're doing something that's not typical and routine. And when you think about protecting privacy and protecting data, you want really well-structured workflows because then you can actually ensure that those workflows are being monitored. But the idea of research is that, well, let's look into something different. Let's look Mm -hmm. at this from a different angle. Let's gather more data than we typically look at to understand it. And so it is creating an unnatural uh, increase of exposure when it comes to risk, Um, especially because as as, uh, we've heard a couple of times in this call, research is collaborative. And so it can't be done in a vacuum. It's not just one person on one database. It's collaborators sometimes across institutions or sometimes across countries. Uh, And so it just overall just increases the risk uh, surface area. Chuck, you mentioned before in the conversation about the ever-expanding landscape, threat landscape, risk profile as the organization continues to move into the cloud, continues to use managed services more and more and more folks are having logins to your system and access. Um, have you found any any procedures, uh, committees, processes that, that you feel are helping you get your arms around that? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, having good policy and structure and the people that are willing to enforce it is uh, is key. I mean, the CISO sits right beside my office here and we are, uh, we work together. Uh, in order to do that. And we're at, at lockstep related to, you know, the physical access to the, the systems and, and the virtual access to the systems. And, you know, we're we're doing more and more managed services. And we decided a long time ago that, you know, we're, we're not going to give them physical access. We're going to air gap them with a virtual machine in the cloud. 
uh, and to do that, that's where they're going to access our systems. But if they need to, you know, we also have managed services that uh, act as our own staff. I mean, you know, it's no different than you think about uh, the amount of agency staff that on the clinical side that that is that this whole country is using because of just the the vacancy rate of of nurses and other clinicians. You know, we're even using uh, agency ultrasonographers. Well, guess what? Those have to be uh, have a non-employee account. They have to go through the same rigor as an employee does. Uh, and so, I, you know, it's it's you, you don't necessarily have a second set of policies. Everybody's kind of treated the same, uh, and uh, the way they're they're accessed. Unfortunately, uh, you have to set up some different frameworks uh, depending upon where they're going to be. We have some system support that it comes out of India. Well, guess what? Uh, we we geofence everything that's that's coming in, so we have to set up uh, with uh, the vendors who's providing that a, a mechanism that they can hit a jump server or whatever you want to call it in the U.S. before they get in, actually get into our systems or get into their virtual machines. And so, you know, there's not one approach. There's multiple approaches mm-hmm. that we have to take because, it's, you know, it's it's changing. You know, we've always had the vendors who's supporting the equipment or the other systems, you know, you know like our CT scanners and that kind of stuff. And so we put in tools that help us monitor what uh, what is, what's appropriate access uh, Nicole mentioned data loss prevention. Then, you know, we put in uh, a couple of uh, monitoring tools that can actually, you know, tell us what's normal behavior. Uh, you know, if that that MRI machine is only supposed to access, uh, you know, particular, you know, the PAC system and maybe uh, you may have a uh, a connection to the risk system, and all of a sudden it starts trying to get to an IP address that's sitting somewhere. Uh, that we've geofenced. Well, we want to know that uh, sooner than later. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of different things you can do to help mitigate and, you know, and either either putting controls or compensating controls in order to mitigate some of that risk. But, uh, and this this is where the insider stuff comes on, uh, you know, then that's the reason that we're implementing a network access control system because I don't want anybody to be able to jack anything into my in, into my network because I take it personal uh, and get in DHCP serve up an IP address. They don't need that level of access unless I know who they are and I know what equipment they're they're connected. Long answer. Sorry. Good, a- Adam. Anything you want to add on to that? Thoughts on what Chuck just said? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's all about balancing risk versus reward, I guess, at a high level. I mean, yeah, systems are changing. We're moving apps to the cloud. We have new tools at our disposal today, tools that frankly can give us visibility into things that we never had visibility into in the past. I mean, we talked about AI-driven potentially um, uh, risk management as it pertains to your employee base. Um, I think the key is to... Uh, you know, and I look at from a cybersecurity angle, what am I what am I chartered to protect? What tools do I have to protect it? Do I have the right data sources, visibility and the right mechanisms in place to act if something actually happens? And I think a lot of organizations struggle when it really comes to at least I've seen in my experience, organizations struggle when it comes to the um, the processes to actually enforce, um, you know, and, and something that I've noticed in healthcare in particular, healthcare delivery in particular, is that everyone wants to trust everybody. We're all out to do the right things. Everyone wants to assume that their employees are there for the right reasons and doing the right things. And I do too, frankly, but you have to have mechanisms in place to control for those situations where 
um, data is being misused, systems are being in, uh, inappropriately accessed, um, misconfigured and exposing you to external threats, not just the insiders. Um, so I agree with everything Chuck said. Nick, I want to bring you in here um, and and ask you one of the the ideas behind the webinar was this concept of proact uh, reactive versus proactive approach to dealing with insider threats. Um, tell me a little bit more about your thoughts about what that means and how people can go about being more proactive. Yeah, we were talking uh, before the webinar. A couple of us are um, former service current former current service members in the military. We have this concept of Seaburny threat spectrum, the chemical, biological, nuclear uh, explosive. The idea is that there's a really low chance of a really big incident, uh, like a nuclear attack, but there's a very high volume of risk for very uh, relatively low damage incidents like explosives, like IEDs or landmines. I think the same thing applies to the risk in cybersecurity and privacy, where you have a very high volume of low risk and benign incidents. This is the things that folks on this call have talked about in terms of sloppy practice or, um, you know, unintentional or benign or benevolent uh, 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 infractions against a policy. And so as a way to actually address the entire spectrum, you need to think about how can we provide better education opportunities at that high volume of incidents that are, are creating low risk that build up over a period of time. Uh, we've also found in our research that those low-risk incidents tend to build up over time and actually lead to bigger incidents on that spectrum. People that get away with the benign stuff tends to push the envelope and do more nefarious stuff over time. So the sooner you can educate, the better. Uh, we all think about education as like new employee training or your annual privacy security training. Uh, but it, the most effective training we found is when you can identify when someone is doing something questionably and educate them right there on the spot. We do this in security with uh, phishing training where we simulate a phishing email. And then when they click on it, we say, hey, you clicked on it. This is an example of what you're not supposed to do. It's kind of hard to do that in privacy because we can't uh, simulate a privacy violation. But what we can do is identify those early warning signs, those benign behaviors, reach out to employees and say, hey, did you know you're not supposed to be accessing your own record? You're not supposed to be accessing your, your mother-in-law's record. Like These are the kind of things that you know people should know, but they often come back and say, oh, I didn't even realize that. I thought I could. And that that moment where you educate someone is not just beneficial because you've solved that one problem, but you've also prevented all the other incidents that person could do had they not been addressed in that moment. Nicole, you, just, what are you, uh, go ahead, Adam, and then we'll bring in Nicole. Sure, yeah, to jump in real quick, I, I think the key is taking a data-driven approach. I mean, again, everyone wants to trust that their employees are doing the right thing, but not many organizations are actually lo looking at what their employees are really doing with their data or with their systems. Um, what I found to be very effective is, and I think Chuck, actually, you said this earlier, um, you go look for the monster, not necessarily because you want to create work, but understanding that the monster exists, you know, metaphorically is a really key point, a, a key, very important measure to uh, understanding your risk posture as an organization and potentially the proactive measures that you have to put in place to protect your organization from adverse events. Nicole, thoughts on proactive versus reactive? 
Yes, I would love to be in a much more proactive state. I think we're going to get there eventually. Uh, but to piggyback off of some of the points that Nick made is uh, using uh, proactive uh, auditing and monitoring, we're able to uh, at least identify when those either errors or um, questionable practices do happen. And uh, we have found it incredibly effective to sometimes it's just a simple conversation with the employee. It doesn't mean that it's a, a true investigation or they're in trouble, but what are you really doing? What are, what are you attempting to do? Uh, one example I'll give is we had something pop up in our workflow that in our work queue that it looked like an employee had uh, accessed 300 records in literally a minute. So there's no way. Um, and so I started thinking back to old school, um, not even EHRs, old school, like DOS based, like appointing systems. That's how long I've worked in healthcare at this point. And I realized what this person was doing. Epic is a, a visual GUI. You're, you typically use your mouse, you click on it, it records your clicks. Uh, I said, this person's using their arrow key. So they're running a search and then using their arrow key and scrolling down. So every every time they hit something, it counted as a click. Uh, they really weren't looking at very much information. You know, it was probably not even a second. Uh, but we were able to have a conversation with that employee and say, this is not a good practice. I understand you've this person had worked at this organization for a very long time. And so they just had a really bad practice. Um, nothing intentional, but said, you're going to keep popping up and uh, auditing and monitoring if you don't uh, change your practice and just start using your mouse uh, more frequently. So just one example of that targeted education that we're able to do. But I, I think we're we're definitely seeing big results. Uh, we are seeing a uh, a downward trend in the number of cases that uh, are violations, and most of these tend to be policy violations versus things that are reportable. Um, it's nothing that we have to report to the OCR, but they do violate our policies internally. Um, so, and I, I credit that to having some knowledge about what our staff is doing and being able to deliver that targeted education to them. Well, uh, and Nicole, you raise a great point, and and Nick, I think you did too. Is you know, we we tell uh, the employees that you know, Big Brother's watching. We we have tools in place. Uh, that uh, we can watch, but until that they either experience uh, that the privacy officer or the compliance officer or HR having that conversation with them about an inappropriate access of information, or they know someone who has had those conversations, they don't believe it. And so, and I'm not suggesting that we, you know, uh, burn people at the stake, but uh, they they need to un understand that the tools that we have in place are real, uh, and they are watched because if if uh, you know it's kind of like you know having you know a teenager, which I had several, have a curfew. Uh, if uh, they have a curfew, but you go to bed before the curfew is over, and you never stay up to to see if they violate the curfew, they they make the determination as eh, it's just a rule. I'm not going to follow it. Uh, and so every once in a while, you have to be sitting there when they walk in the door an hour late, uh, and then they get to look you in the face, and then you have a conversation about trust. So, no we, matter we, how, go ahead, Nicole. 
Oh, sorry. We've, we've had to do a lot of education about what access really means. Um, and I have to frame it around paper records versus electronic records. When in the old paper chart days, when you have the chart in hand, you have the chart, you open it, everything's in there. And but because our EHRs now are modulized, um, they're compartmentalized, they don't really understand that as soon as you're seeing THI, you're viewing the chart, they'll say, well, I just looked at demographic information. I said, well, that's still PHI. And, and so doing, a, again, having to educate and explain what does access really mean uh, in a digital age uh, has, I think, for a lot of our employees has been really eye opening. I think the other thing, too, is people don't really understand that that now that some of the changes in the HIPAA laws and the other privacy laws and security laws that they themselves personally can be held accountable rather than just the company or, or the organization be held accountable. All right, listen, we're almost out of time. I want to do what, I, what I'm going to call a lightning round of final thoughts. 30 seconds. Let's go 30 seconds. Best piece of advice on managing insider threats. Um, Adam, let's start with you. Someone in a, and there aren't many, someone in a, a role at a comparable sized institution. So, so big, big, big. What's your best advice on them as they try and manage their insider threat? Yeah, I think it's, you know, trust and verify, right? Um, treat insider threats no different um, than you treat external threats. It all has to be part of your risk calculus. And so understand where your organization operates, what intellectual property you have, what data you have, where that data resides. Do appropriate screening for employees that are accessing the data and have preventative controls and detective controls in place to um, prevent people from doing stuff they shouldn't be doing and detect when they do the stuff they shouldn't be doing. Perfect. Nicole? Don't make assumptions. I've gone into many investigations thinking things were uh, one uh, one flavor, and uh, but asked the hard questions and found out something completely different. So definitely have those conversations, talk to the employees, uh, but don't just go off of assumptions. Chuck? Uh, I'll use the same words that Nicole had never assumed that you have uh, everything buttoned up and you don't have a problem uh, because you're delusional uh, (laughs) is that uh, it is, it is, you know, security is just like everything else. You're never done uh, because uh, just as, you know, the the thing that scares me the most is AI uh, and what's going to come next. And uh, you, you have to be diligent and, uh, and, you know, it's it's not that I'm paranoid. I'm just certain. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Nick, we'll give you the last word. I'll say the flip side of what Chuck said. Um, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Yeah. Technology is the problem, but it's also an incredible asset to solving the problem. And our adversaries are getting more sophisticated and more complicated in their threats. And we can't be relying on manual paper-driven tools uh, to be able to monitor and protect data, we need to use the best uh, available resources out there. Very good. Excellent. Well, that's about all we had time for today regarding continuing education. You'd use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of today's event is ready for viewing. And if you want to sponsor an event, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and go to our website to register for upcoming panels. With that, I want to thank our tremendous panel, Chuck Christian, Adam Zoller, Nicole Brown and Nick Culbertson. I want to thank Pro Tennis for sponsoring and you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Happy Friday Eve. <laughs>